1: Gianluca Luca Garofoli in the Marche. Hello, sir. How are you?
2: Buongiorno. Very good. Tutto bene. Very nice to see you. Thank you. So your family goes back quite a ways in this area of the Marque. Garofoli wine started out of the unification of Italy. That happened in the middle of the 19th century. What was the style back then? Well, the production was uh, for sure with local grapes. You know, at the time uh, probably we didn't know very well uh, all the things that we know right now about the genetics of uh, the grapes. So. Farmers and growers like Antonio Garofoli, a long time ago, for sure, used what we are using right now, but uh, with less knowledge. Would have, the vines have been on pergola back then, or on? Absolutely, uh... absolutely. That was typical. I, I was born in 1980, and I still remember all the pergola around the winery. So, for sure, yes. The wines were sold locally, or? Yeah, yeah. The distribution was local. So we have one customer that is uh, more than a century. And this is something uh, very special. When we celebrated the one century of the winery, he actually gave us uh, the little wooden bearer with whom we delivered the wine uh, to this customer. So it's a long, uh, long story. Well, he still owes you money for all of those deliveries.
0: Okay. Yes, for a hundred years.
2: <laughs> who lived here at that time? Was there a monastery influence? Was it a nobility? Or who lived in the Marque? The Marque region was under the state of the Pope, so it was Vatican. Because Italy was divided in many different kingdoms, and uh, Marche region was under the state of the Pope. So even Antonio Garofoli, the very first generation, he was working for uh, Loreto Church, that is uh, Vatican. And in fact, uh, Antonio Garofoli was considered kind of uh, the new countryman generation, because when the state of the Pope collapsed and uh, Italy was unified, the um, state of the Pope, the Vatican, as was forced to sell uh, lands And Antonio Garofoli was one of the very first generation that could purchase its own lands from the state of the Pope. Everything was owned by the Church. So he started uh, from that uh, political revolution. And um, our location, Loreto, is very important for Christianity. There is a house where uh, the Virgin Mary was born. And uh, there are many, many pilgrims in Loreto. And Garofoli started to sell wine to these pilgrims. Where we lived, was uh, an era of uh, tourism, but it was uh, 130 years ago. That's very interesting about selling to a pilgrim market. Yeah. Our first customer was the traveler. In those years, uh, traveler from all over Italy, but all over Europe. In fact, uh, uh, sometimes we always think about uh, the production side, but uh, many times you have to think about uh, who's your customer. And uh, in those years, uh, obviously... Uh, as you can, as you know, in all over the United States, all over South America, there are many, many Italians because Italy was extremely poor. So uh, where do you sell your wine? You say, okay, now I own the land and I make wine, but which is my my customer? Obviously, the typical Osteria and Trattoria. So the bulk wine that was famous then with a mix of water from the, the Oste, the owner of the restaurant, but for sure... Our main business was with the travelers and pilgrims. We had uh, one uh, location at the winery that was on the way to go to this very famous church. And then we have a second location, the selling point in the major square of Loreto. So either at the beginning or at the end, uh, you you had to buy uh, (laughs) uh, some Garoppoli wines. Do you know what the kind of taste was at that time? And were things a little fortified or were they lower in alcohol? Or what were people drinking? I tell you this story just to answer this. In uh, 1981, when we made uh, a wine that is probably one of the most famous for us, called Macrina, we introduced this wine in a clear glass bottle just to show to our customers in Italy and worldwide that that wine stayed white for one year or two years. That was a a technological uh, revolution in 1981. In the 40s, in the 30s, we used to pasteurization. Of the wine to stabilize because uh, it was very difficult to have a white wine that stayed white and didn't turn brown. Uh, so I guess and uh, reassure that in those years it was probably fortified wines. So was there a history of sharecropping in the area and for Garofoli or how did it work with the production? Mezzadria was uh, something that we practiced uh, as well. It was a typical uh, situation in the in the Italian countryside my grandfather told that uh, everybody used to have uh, lunch all together so that, that these are the stories of these long long tables with everybody having lunch uh, and the uh, the heavy job on the shoulder of uh, their the mothers you know they were mothers of maybe 9 or 11 kids and then having uh, for lunch all the workers in the countryside at the winery there were separate farmhouses for each family on the property or how did it... Yes, absolutely, absolutely. In each property, Garofoli, first of all, is a, is a, the sum of many little properties. And uh, in each little uh, property, there always been the house of uh, of the farmer who took care of the that specific area. So it's, it's the sum of many, many little houses that we still own, a lot of uh, these houses. When did that phase out? I mean, I think it's later in the market than the rest of
1: Italy, right? For the mezzadria,
2: From the 50s. In the sixties, uh, so I mean, very recent if you consider. <laughs>
1: so you can still meet people today who
2: remembered that time.
1: Or absolutely were... yes, absolutely yes. Does your dad ever talk to you about what it was like after? That must have been an interesting change.
2: The, one of the the funniest uh, story of uh, of my grandfather and uh, my uncle. My grandfather was the winemaker, and now my uncle is the winemaker. Is that uh, like uh, when we started to make a low yield characters to convince the farmers and growers uh, even you know our employees to cut down the bunches and uh, they didn't do it just because uh, the change of the mentality uh, in the past there was less uh, tension in growing a uh, specific grape varieties in a specific area but uh, for those people that did that they do it like we did in the Conero it was uh, clear the difference between one area to another one, because like in the corner, we have uh, three different properties in three different uh, areas. So I'm sure that they didn't know nothing like what we know right now, but uh, they exactly knew where was the best area, the best wine, the wine with more aging capability. So it was more um, something that uh, you discover year by year, step by step. Because the market
1: today, at least on this part of it, to me seems still very agrarian.
2: With there are one million and a half people in this region and living uh, the seventy percent or even more along the coastline. All the inland of market region is uh, is cultivated with uh, uh, sunflowers, uh, vineyards. Uh, if you think about the typical structure of, on the on the field in the past was vineyard, wheat in between, and olive trees, and wheat around them. So you don't waste uh, nothing. So you're in the Castelli di Yesi, and what's that zone like? This area was covered completely by the sea in the past. And in fact, the specificity of uh, Yesi area where we grow Verdicchio is that it was an ancient seabed, some shells in the rock. So it's uh, just a, a beautiful area made of uh, little uh, little castles, little town. The denomination is called Castelli di Yesi, castles around Yesi because these castles were protecting the city of Yezi. So it's a network. It's a network of small uh, small towns. What's really interesting about Yezi
1: is how much of it is on limestone,
2: most of it. Yeah, limestone, sands. it's uh, the key to understand uh, Verdicchio di Casta di Yezi and is the key to understand why Verdicchio is not all over Italy and is in this specific area. Uh, planting Verdicchio in the corner area or in the south of in and north of Marche you will never get the minerality and this kind of minerality you get in the Castel di Yezi area just because of this. And there are some areas that are more limestone, some areas that it's a mix of uh, clay, and sand uh, then you know we have uh, even here we have our gauche uh, river and Dra. Uh, we have a more sandy less sandy more limestone uh, then um, someone says in the north part more it's boulder verdicchio south part is more perfumed. there are some little distinctions in, even in the in the area um, market region is um, based on valleys that they go from uh, from west to east and this is another important aspect of the winds coming from the seaside and protected on the west by the apennines and always the the wind coming from the sea into the valley going up till the mountains because i think a lot of times at least for the american audience
1: when we think of what's a good vintage for italy we think of tuscan vintage chart or Piemonte vintage chart it's easy to do but those are really on the other side of Italy, and they have a different coastal aspect in terms of Tuscany and then a different proximity to a different range of mountains in terms of Piemonte. So it feels like what was good necessarily for the west side of Italy might not be the same climactically since your weather's coming off of the Adriatic on the east side. Seems like there could be some differences. Mm-hmm.
2: Exactly, I can only agree. And uh, obviously, if you think if you think about Tuscany and uh, and Marche and Umbria, at least we are in the center of Italy. When you think about uh, uh, Alto Adige to Sicily, it's even more. In fact, sometimes, uh, like the famous two thousand and two vintage, oh, Italy, very bad. Okay, it was not the best one, but in Marche region, it was uh, it was very good. Yeah, in Italy, you cannot uh, unify one judgment for all. The, Peninsula, and even in the center of Italy, even Tuscany uh, and the market that are neighborhood, it's totally different because uh, we have the influence of uh, the east, uh, the Adriatic Sea, and it's totally different from the other side. These are things that uh, you even discover, even not being uh, in the wine industry. Uh, You just drive the car going to Rome. Here it's sunny. You just uh, pass the Apennines. It's raining. On the other side and uh, we know we make a phone call from the house how is uh, in uh, aquila or how is uh, is uh, it sunny or it's snowing on the other side nothing so this is these are little things even you're not an expert you don't grow vineyards that is very clear and easy to understand uh, how different it is and in Marque region there is another peculiarity that um, Ancona that is actually in the middle of Marque region is at uh, the end of the continental weather that starts like in Germany, let's say. And then just uh, in the Conero area starts the Mediterranean weather. So we are on the edge of this. And Yezi area is on the edge of this. And we are always, especially in the Conero and Yezi. Yezi, when you want to, to have a good ripeness, you have to go into October. There is no way. We started to harvest uh, the youngest grapes. Uh, in the beginning of september but for uh, the selections you need uh, ripeness and when you get into october and you are on the edge of continental and mediterranean weather you're always uh, uh, worried about rain ice rain could be a big a big problem so it's uh, even in market region we have uh, different climates from center to south you know you
1: said you're on the edge of mediterranean continental but you're also on the edge you're on the northern border of where Montepulciano, the grape variety, is grown in Italy, right?
2: Yes, absolutely. In fact, uh, above us, uh, there is a Sangiovese. Sangiovese in Emilia-Romagna, but even in uh, the northern market, in Pesari-Sangiovese. Um, it's, uh, it's an ortho uh, appellation using uh, 100% or 85% Montepulciano. It's next to the seaside in this beautiful mountain. Uh, my uncle uh, one time told me that uh, the selection of this grape uh, was made because Monte Connor is next to the seaside. And the seaside brings uh, humidity, and Montepulciano has a uh, thick skin. So, uh, very resistant for this kind of climate and weather. You know, those things, as I said before, were made with uh, probably experience more than, you know, the DNA and the things we know now. But many years ago, people didn't think about Sangiovese, but thought about Montepulciano in that area. And there, you have to wait at the middle of uh, October always to harvest at the right ripeness.
1: Because I do see a, a fair amount of ripe Montepulciano or Montepulciano mostly wines coming from this zone. When I taste through Rosso Conoros, some of them seem quite big to me.
2: Uh, once again, we have uh, stainless steel tank, uh, Rosso Conoros, big barrels, and barrique. Usually the maceration with the skin uh, is uh, two weeks, 18 days. At temperate control, this is uh, because we wanted to extract uh, all the polyphenolic content from the skins because uh, the color of Montepulciano is important. We want that. This obviously brings uh, some uh, extraction as well to the wine. Uh, usually the tannins are powerful and gentle at the same time. For sure, I, I understand it's, uh, it's not a Pinot Noir, okay? It's a Montepulciano, a wine that you feel in the mouth. Uh, is a thick wine. It could well be that some of my impressions of the
1: wines are actually colored literally by how dark they are you know it could be that they're not actually as grippy as i expect from the color but the color clouds my thinking on it because i'm used to associating that color with a different structure in the mouth
2: i have to say that with uh, some of our selection of montepulciano we now try to harvest a little bit before in a little bit more quantity to have less uh, structure and using more and more the Italian big barrel. The Italian big barrel that gives a very neutral taste to the wine, especially barrels like 7, 10, 15 years old. And this uh, is bringing a lot of balance, a lot of equilibrium in, uh, in the Montepulcianos. In fact, there was in the 90s the idea of over-extracting and making powerful. Um, now it's changing. So what's interesting about Garofli amongst many things is that you make different lines
1: of wine so you'll deal with the same grape variety but in different fashions at different price points different levels of maturation and different levels of ripeness the way you'll handle it will be different from both the vineyard level and from the winery level so when you approach the reds of this region and you decide how you're going to divide them up in these different lines what's important at the different
2: levels and then what does that result in what does that mean in the vineyard and in the winery we make a 25 different wines using uh, basically three grape varietals. Verdicchio on the white side where we make uh, more than 10 different wines just playing uh, with the vineyards time of harvesting uh, and uh, just one is barrique for example. So stainless steel tank we make uh, sparkling bubbles less, more. We like uh, a lot to use uh, the grape varietals that we have. Monte is the same thing. We make uh, the first harvest where we want acidity, freshness, a wine that is going be in the stainless steel tank, young Rosso Conero, big barrel, barrique, and then we do micro vinifications as well. So we know lot by lot. So sometimes we make one wine that is called La Selezione, is the best of the best, and then we made Metodo Classic with Montepulciano. We make a rosé with Montepulciano, but always working with Montepulciano. You don't find a, a Cabernet Montepulciano. We want to to have different styles, different approach. For example, now this year in um, Porto Novo, that is a town next to the seaside, we are promoting uh, the Young Rosso Conero in stainless steel tank with uh, Sardone Scottadito, with fish. Okay, so obviously when we thought about that wine, we thought about wine that could be suitable for fish, one kind of fish, specific fish. So obviously we think about different styles, but using uh, the same grape variety. So it must be really interesting to see it through different lenses like that. It's like you
1: would really kind
2: of see the same thing, but very differently. To me, and for us, it's uh, super interesting, uh, especially we love work uh, 100% with the same grape variety. So in theory, 85% is Montepulciano, and then you can use a uh, 15% of something else. But uh, we love to work with uh, Montepulciano 100% or Verdicchio 100%, just because then you can, when you taste all the glasses, you taste all the results, of the wines you make, then you really see that it's the same grape varietal, but with totally different styles, totally different wines. And, you know, sometimes, uh, like, uh, for example, our Piancar, that's wine we make uh, for 50, 60 years. You change the style. You never change the, the grape varietal, big barrel. You just, um, maybe in the past, we waited one year more before selling to the market because we want more important, uh, aromatic uh, wine. And now we are, you know, selling a newer vintage, like uh, instead of 2011, 2013. So just, uh, you know, just uh, releasing a younger vintage with the same wine, you have a different uh, approach to the market. So sometimes you don't have to invent uh, nothing, just a different uh, idea and timing of selling a wine.
1: I could see how a certain vintage might give you more of one of those wines than another. The characteristics of one year might be lighter or more towards the Seleccione style in the other direction. I mean, I imagine there's some years where you make very little or nothing of a wine, and then there's other years where you make a fair amount or a lot of it.
2: Absolutely. In fact, just to give you an idea, our Reserva Grossa Contano, uh, in the last uh, five years, we skipped 2010 vintage, 2013, 2014 vintage, and then 2012... We made the double of what we used making from that vineyard. So you never know. Uh, you never know what uh, a vintage brings to you. In the other vintages, for example, we had to harvest uh, in advance. So obviously we made much more lighter style of uh, Montepulcianos. You have to, to deal with, uh, with the nature and which uh, kind of uh, vintage uh, you have. Because there's vintage
1: variation to the region, you change the style of the production to meet the vintage.
2: We want to produce different styles, so and very difficult to compare to, to each other. Our second label or third label is just because we want this kind of style. It's not uh, the second best of the best.
1: So when do you start making that decision? Is it when the grapes start coming in? Is it when you start planting the vineyard at a different exposure, and you say like, okay, well, this is facing that way, so it's going to be this kind of wine? Or, I mean, at what point do you say like, okay, this mm. kind of Montepulciano is going to make this wine? Is it at the end, uh, you know, as you're tasting through barrels, or is it the beginning when you're planting or harvesting?
2: Or actually, you understand a lot of things uh, during uh, the blooming season, uh, but um, you, you should never judge from the grapes, even from the must, before saying something or very positive or very bad, we wait at least December, January. From that time, we start to see and to understand if uh, it could be a great vintage or not. Because um, many times, many times, and now I speak on behalf of my uncle, that... uh, Vintages like in 1995, 2005, very rainy, very bad. We could not even enter with the tractors. And uh, and then it, it resulted in great, great wines. My uncle says, uh, never judge a wine. <laughs> wait, uh, if it's a great wine, wait for years because you never know the evolution of, uh, of that wine. Many times we have uh, old vintages that they were basically abandoned at the winery, say, oh, this is not good. You retaste it and then... Uh, You say, wow, this is the the wine that uh, left uh, for many years. So you have all the indicators to understand, even from the grapes. But uh, wait, wait to judge a wine. You have a fair amount of hectares. I think it's about 55. Is that correct? Yes. Now we purchased more hectares. So we are now about 70 hectares. It's not uh, written in the the website. We are just uh, purchased more. I imagine with having that amount of hectare
1: that you have it at different elevations and that you have different exposures and that you do see a different blend of sand to clay to limestone. So when that happens in red, because we'll get to white later, what does that look like? I mean, what works for Montepulciano? Does it have to face a certain way? Does it have to be at a certain kind of incline?
2: In the corner area, it's it's beautiful and very, very, very hard to deal with the national park. Uh, If you have vineyards in the national park, like we do. So there you have uh, chalk chalk in some part of our vineyard you have the 50% of chalk and it's a lot from that area you actually you're worried about water if you don't see enough water during the summer you go there you see yellow leaves so you you know exactly the concentration of chalk and clay in that area so you know your vineyard in fact uh, we do at least three different wines from the same single vineyard just knowing uh, the different uh, composition of the soil and like the uh,
1: parcel within the vineyard absolutely
2: totally different like the north parcel of uh, where we make our reserve is a uh, chalk 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 and from there we make uh, what we call the selection the best of the best just every four five years so it really depends most of the time we waste uh, that grapes because
1: essentially, you're getting a lot of water stress and probably low vigor, and then you're not getting a lot of actual grapes on the vine. Is that what yes, you're saying?
2: Yes, absolutely. absolutely. Is The water stress is the number one enemy in the corner area because of this poor soil. Because
1: you're in Europe and you can't irrigate.
2: Yes, yes. Even though chalk is a great thing because uh, chalk holds 40% of humidity that gives back during the night. And this is something very good of a chalkiness uh, soil. But it's not enough. It's not enough uh, to have uh, substantial uh, water humidity in that area. So when you compare those vinifications from that parcel, the heavy chalk
1: parcel, to something that has more sand in it, or negaliptically in the fermented wine, what are the
2: differences? For sure, in, uh, there are big differences. Uh, there is more extraction, more powerful wines uh, from the chalk area. And these are the wines that we use for long, long aging uh, from the other side, uh, the other parcel, they are uh, radier before before. We know exactly that, oh, this wine is made for aging. It comes from the chalkier part of the vineyard. The parcel that the selection only
1: comes from, is that level of chalk fairly rare within the zone, or is that something that's found?
2: If you have the vineyards inside the National Park, uh, it's uh, normal to have chalk. Uh, all the towns are built uh, with chalks in that area. It was famous even to the Romans, the Seco Caves. Uh, of chalk. So if you have the vineyards inside the national park, uh, for sure you have this kind of soil. You can have uh, vineyards uh, in the same appellation, but outside of, of uh, the national park, and then you have uh, a clay composition. It's totally different, totally different soil. Because I think if that were the case, in some
1: zones, they might push for two different appellations or some kind of subzone or classical
2: designation. Absolutely. In fact, uh, in the corner era, we are now asking uh, to have microzoning zoning. Uh, Areas Like, for example, our microzone is called the Piancarta. And we have another property in the corner outside of the National Park. We're talking about two completely different <laughs> soil and two different wines. So uh, it's, uh, it's a process that is, uh, is right now, it's going to ask uh, microzoning. And um, in the Yezi area, we're not asking uh, for that because the soil is a little bit more similar in the Appellation. So where the whites made is more uniform, but yes, Rosal- more uniform in in the Conero. Two that, totally different words. That's
1: interesting because I feel like I have two kinds of Rosso Conero. like yes. In the
2: mark, you know, when I buy one, I feel like it's kind of generally one way or another. Absolutely, and uh, and you're totally right because there are two different areas basically.
1: So how do you get vineyards in a national park? Are they kind of grandfathered in? Did you have them before it became a yes. park?
2: Yes, yes. And this was uh, one of the uh, the biggest fights uh, inside the Garofoli family because when the, they bought uh, this estate, uh, those were years where we wanted the quantities and not the qualities. I mean, qualities, but you know, we wanted uh, a nice result in terms of quantities. And uh, so basically, we stressed all the vines and they died. And so they pulled out all the, the vineyards and this vineyard stayed without vines for several years. So it was... Uh, Big affair at Garofoli wine because, you know, it's about, you know, 15 hectares. So it's not. Uh... And then my uncle uh, replanted everything, increasing a lot of the number of vines and reducing a lot of the quantities uh, per single vine. So water stress is uh, nothing comparing the past, even though even nowadays some vines, they die. Even though now that we know how to treat uh, very well that vineyard. So essentially they
1: were farming that zone like the other zones yes and it didn't work at all
2: absolutely absolutely completely they didn't understand uh, what to do and it was a disaster and so they were probably like that's a bad parcel but now you're like hey this is kind of cool over here
1: absolutely I mean, it sounds like because that's your selection now
2: it's absolutely now our uh, prime uh, area and uh, we are one of one of the few wineries to have lands in the national park it's just a matter of as all the things eh, to understand how it works because uh, it was a completely mistake at the very beginning do you
1: do different kinds of things in terms of trellising height or do you do different things between those two zones for red when you're trying to deal with this situation but
2: actually one is more productive so you are you have a uh, free hands to increase quantity even per single vine Instead of the chalk area in the National Park, uh, you have um, to be very careful uh, what to do. So basically, we increased uh, about uh, 5,000 vines per single hectare, which is quite a big number, and uh, three, four bunches per single vine. We have grass now in the vineyard. This is something, uh, it was a dream for the 70s, the 80s, to keep humidity. So we try all the things uh, to manage this kind of soil and grass is one of those. You want water in the soil, so you yes. keep grass there, so it yes. doesn't evaporate. Yes, grass and chalk, as I said before, it keeps the 40% of humidity. In this area, you have to, to invent all the possible things uh, to keep water and to keep healthy the vines.
1: Is that exacerbated
2: by exposure
1: or inclination? Like, is it a particularly steep where the drainage would be fast, or is it facing south where it gets get more sun? Actually, or?
2: it goes from southeast to southwest. Absolutely, the inclination uh, is a problem. In fact, the northern part of the vineyard is uh, the poorest in terms of uh, water during the harvesting time. In October, you just walk from north to south on the vineyard, eating uh, the grapes, and you have a totally different sugar concentration that is actually much more higher in the north part compared to the south part. Even inside of the vineyard, you have totally different grapes. So it probably means you have to do multiple harvests in that vineyard. Oh, yes. We do micro-vinification lot by lot. Absolutely impossible to treat uh, as one piece of land.
1: What's it like to sell Rosso Conero? Because, you know, as you've been describing, there's a lot of them. And so I guess that would create different impressions in the market of what someone might be expecting. And then it also sounds like the cost of production, just in terms of how many grapes you're getting at per vine, is vastly different depending on which vineyard parcel. So when you go
2: to the market with a Rosso Conero, what's the reception? The biggest problem is that uh, the grape variety is not written at all in the label. So you know where is the cornero or you don't know the wine. And when you don't know the wine, you don't buy the wine in majority of the case. So the reception is very poor, even in Italy, even in the market region outside of the Ancona area. And uh, we do sell a lot of rosso Conero, but because we have verdicchio. Okay, so if you are uh, a producer of just rosso Conero. I see a lot of difficulties, uh, even though um, the wine is a great wine, but um, market-wise, the reception is is very poor. Then, for example, one of my best stories uh, in New York, uh, we started uh, selling uh, Verdicchio, obviously, it's most famous from Marke. And after five years, we were selling more Rosso Conner than Verdicchio. But this happened just because I'm a Verdicchio producer i think it could not happen the opposite that you start with the Conero and then with other wines so the reception is uh, um, is not it's not good at all that must be a
1: downward pressure on you know having a small domain Rosso Conero producer that sounds like that that's a tough road for that kind of production in this zone
2: um right now i don't think you can uh, you can survive in the long run And uh, you can maybe develop a good network in in your region or, uh, you know, kind of winery shop and so on. But uh, being a producer just from a not well-known region, not a well-known area uh, and uh, with the inconsistent quality, because we have to think uh, even in consideration of that. I said that you have to go to October and you never know how it's going to be. If you put all these things together, I think uh, that uh, it's going to be complicated in the future.
1: So has the the acreage or the hectareage gone down of red wine plantings in the area?
2: is decreasing. Because it's, decreasing.
1: it's the opposite for white, right? Verdicchio is increasing the number of producers and the number of acreage.
2: Yes, absolutely. Verdicchio is now re-exploding uh, in a good way right now. Not like it was in the 50s, in the 60s that was famous uh, for being an Italian white wine, for a particular shape of the bottle, and so on. That was very positive. I'm the person that, uh, you know, I'm very positive about that. That put Verdicchio in the world map at that time. Now we are uh, becoming famous for the quality of Verdicchio. You explained about the Montepucciano
1: in terms of lower vigor and chalk. When Verdicchio was planted in limestone, like you have a lot
2: of here, what happens? In the past, uh, there was the idea that uh, the lower heel per hectare always the best verdicchio is generous is uh, you don't need to go so so in small hill practice to get a great verdicchio and this is something uh, very important for an area because um, you can make a, a wine with a generous production in high quality and uh, the soil is very rich limestone is very rich I, i'm not talking about you go to 160 or 200 quintals per hectare right? don't misunderstand me but you don't need to go to 60 to 70 so when you have a uh, good economical production and you have high quality, I think it's uh, an area that you will hear in the next future because you can make some money on this wine. Is what you're saying? But actually, yes, you can make some money, but you can even um, you can even um, make a wine for the right price for you know the pocket for many people, and this is something good for everybody. I think it's a win-win. Uh, it's a win-win situation. It's not like um, it could be in Liguria that you don't have the land. You very expensive. We have a very few pieces of land here. We have a very generous uh, land, uh, land made for that. Uh, We go back to the basics. We go back to the basics, to the soil, uh, to the production, uh, and it's very sustainable and in a good way and for many producers. And what I like is the minerality and and crispiness is more and more appreciated uh, by customers, Uh, not from everybody that still love a lot of residual sugar. But in general, I see these trends I like a lot is the direction uh, today yes people
1: are looking for fresh and mineral yes and that's what limestone gives you with
2: verdicchio for us it's just <laughs> perfection and uh, and this is what we look for but even for with food i think uh, it's a good match this kind of two things so stylistically for white you're pretty diversified for what you make absolutely just uh, talking about verdicchio we make um, three different selections just stainless steel tank So different time of harvesting, uh, different properties, uh, different clones. uh, When you get into specific, there are many little differences. That makes three totally different wines. I like a lot uh, traveling the world or having people at the winery and to let them taste uh, 100% verdicchio, stainless steel tank, uh, and uh, how different is the wine. So I think uh, from there you understand uh, the work we do on the field. Because uh, if you have a barrique, okay, we do barrique. It changes a lot. But you have three stainless steel tank wines, same vintage, and three different wines. People say, "Ah, oh, okay. So now I understand you make a completely different job on the vineyard. So this is what we make uh, with our Verdicchio. That we make uh, three stainless steel tanks, one barrique. We make um, one charma Method bubbles, one frizzante, two classic methods, uh, un pasito as well.
1: So you feel that Verdicchio has the character to also be sparkling.
2: Yes, we feel uh, that Verdicchio is one of the uh, indigenous grape varieties that can be classic method. And uh, always better if you pass the 48-54 uh, mounds in the second fermentation. If you have a um, classic method Verdicchio, 12 months. Mm, I'm not sure. But uh, if you have a, it's like a 60-54 mounds second fermentation in a bottle, you can have a great Verdicchio method Classico.
1: Some of that comment to me kind of implies that lees are part of it and i see that also with some of the reserva it seems like lees aging like for muscadet is often a determinant of the
2: wine yeah yeah the lees contact of verdicchio gives uh, some uh, fatness to verdicchio and verdicchio is a mineral and acidic so the lees contact uh, is a perfect marriage for uh, the wine so it's uh, i think it's quite common among all the producers to have a uh, Kind of one year of least contact.
1: And it's also not an aromatic grape variety. I mean, it's not Riesling, it's not Muscat, it's not Gewürztraminer.
2: The strong part of Verdicchio is not in the nose. It's in the mouth. In the, I think it's in the feeling after you drank a glass of Verdicchio. Uh, it's something that I don't know how to explain because it's obviously it's not the acidity, it's not the minerality. It's the, it's the whole experience of a Verdicchio that you understand you, you drank a Verdicchio after you drank a glass of wine, you have this um, feeling, persistence, uh, minerality, leeches, uh, anise component in the mouth that sticks in the mouth. It's a wine with a great personality. But for sure, if you smell it, it's not uh, uh, very evident. The strongest part of Verdicchio is in the palate, is in the finish. In terms of planting it and handling it, what's Verdicchio like? Talking about the 70s, we had uh, the opposite uh, idea of what we have now. In the past, uh, the law says you have to have maximum 1,200 vines per hectare and you have to produce minimum 150 quintals. Okay, so the exact opposite of what we are doing now. That was a law. That was a law. Wow. When we made uh, the first higher selection, we had to break the law uh, because there was a minimum production. Instead of uh, we had to produce uh, twice less than what we had to make minimum. And uh, so everything changed, uh, and uh, obviously they increase uh, from 1,200 uh, vines per hectare to 4,000, 5,000, 6,000 vines per hectare. So this is the big change. Then uh, you can use a Guyot or you can use cordone speronato. Uh, so different.
1: you see different trellising.
2: Yes, there is not one specific rule. I think uh, the most important thing is that uh, leaves uh, are in a good number to protect the grapes uh, of Verdicchio, because uh, direct contact with sun and, and the grapes, uh, they gives uh, much more bitterness uh, to the wine, and this is something we don't want because we said that Verdicchio has uh, acidity and minerality. So in a good amount is a great thing, but then you have so for sure you have to make uh, a production that protects these uh, the grapes. We don't need uh, direct sun.
1: One of the flavor profile noted in a lot of books about Verdicchio is that it's slightly
2: bitter. Typical, uh, the, the, in fact, because it's genetical, there is a typical bitterness, a uh, kind of almond in the aftertaste that is typical. So we have to avoid more bitterness. And you avoid that uh, having a, a system of cultivation with a lot of leaves covering the bunches. Because that's the same as leaner It
1: gets more bitter if it sees more sun. Yeah. Because a lot of times for grape varieties in general, you think of it the other way. As the grape gets riper with more sun, there's going to be less
2: tannins in the wine. You know what I mean? It's more normal, the opposite, in fact. Uh, Not in this case. I know some producers blend many different vineyards. Do you look at it that
1: way, as coming up with the idea of a certain taste that you want to find each year for a certain bottling, and then saying, okay, we're going to take this element from this facing vineyard of this age and
2: blend it with this one? Or how does it work for you? Blending different uh, estates? Yes unless one is very very different from the other ones and you discover it after six months in the tank so you try to to make this blend to make one plus one three and not one plus one two so it does seem like
1: there's a lot of 30 year old vineyards in the Marque when I look at different producers. So does that mean that the vigor stays fairly high? Because I feel like a lot of places where you would go and they would focus on white
2: wines, the vineyard average would be lower than that. When you talk about the 30 years old vineyards, I think it's uh, quite normal because uh, the majority of the wineries born in the 90s in Marque region. If uh, you have to think about uh, wineries from the 50s, you think about five wineries. In the market, so when they started to plant, Verdicchio was late 80s, 90s. So it's uh, quite normal to have uh, this kind of age right now. And you know why? I think that now we are in the peak of quality among many producers because of that. But this is my just impression. I mean, it's uh, not possible to confirm. But I think that uh, right now there are so many awards worldwide of many producers because of that. Because now we have the maturity of the vineyards that we didn't have probably in the 90s or the beginning of uh, the 2000s. How do you see graphically in that puzzle board of different producers,
1: which there's been a quite a bit more since the 90s and then even in the last 10 years, like there's been more. So within that spectrum, how do you see your own winery?
2: We see our winery as a family winery, as the sum of multiple uh, properties, uh, a winery in the market for many years. And we saw a lot of different eras of wine. The wine uh, of in bulk, uh, wine in uh, Damigiana, wine uh, with the screw cap uh, in the 60s, uh, high quality wines, uh, and um, our mission is uh, to bring a territory in another century. Our goal is not just to make the best wine, it's to bring uh, the winery ahead in the centuries. So this is a, a kind of and secret hold by the family. So now we are five generations, our goal is to go to 10 generations, you know, and uh, to make that uh, is not just to make the best wine ever. It's more, I think, a mature approach because um, your goal is uh, to be in the marketplace.
1: You said already that there's been more interest in fresh mineral wines and that bodes well for Verdicchio. But when you say that you want to take the production into the next century, I mean, what does that mean
2: for you? Well, we don't know. We don't know. (laughs) (laughs) We don't know. But uh, the most important thing is that, um, like a winery like us, we do have like a frizzante that is not considered a high quality wine. You know, we never see a Sassicaia frizzante. But for Garofoli, maybe this wine, uh, 60 years ago, allowed us to experiment 90 different clones of Verdicchio on our shoulder. And that wine financially allowed us to make a New wines, new experiment, new selection of lands and clones. So I'm talking uh, about this because it's important, like a winery like us, to have uh, an economical stable situation, to propose uh, real wines and to always study new things. Uh, like the Spumante, Metodo Classico. When we made the Spumante Metodo Classico in 72, uh, in that year, Verdicchio was considered just a cheap white wine to drink within six months. And we started to make Metodo Classico. And uh, it takes a lot of uh, financial resources to make uh, these kind of things. So our goal is, is to bring a culture of market in the future. And uh, if, uh, which kind of style we don't know, it evolves every 10 years, 15 years. The important thing is that we need to have um, a stable economic situation to allow us to study and, and to go forward. Because, you know, sometimes people think, oh, you still make the frizzante, you make a podium, we don't understand. Because the podium is one of the high-end whites. Yes, one of the higher wines. And they say, because I, can, I could make that. And like, for example, I said the Grosso Aguntano Reserva Rosso conero. I skipped the three vintages. You know why? Because I have the frizzante. So I can provide to my customer the best Rosso conero because I can do it. So, you know, this is, uh, this is our… Oh, because of the cash first. flow.
1: Not because of the grapes went into Frisante, but because you made enough money on the yes, other Yes,
2: you one know, because because uh, it allows me to make the quality and uh, I'm not stressed, oh, I have to bottle because if I don't sell this wine, i go bankruptcy. So this is an important thing uh, for a family to represent the territory, always in the best way. And in the future, because uh, in our century, we saw two world wars. right. Uh, We saw the the oil crisis. We saw all the different things. And wine is not always the same, the business. Now we have journalists, we have bloggers, uh, totally different from uh, like in the 90s. The 90s? It was got,
1: a better time, I know. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> no, am yeah. just
2: kidding. No, <laughs> but you got like uh, 192 points from right. Parker and, uh, and uh, you were uh, the most successful winery. You know, uh, things are changing, uh, even political are changing. You know, you do a war with Russia and then you don't sell a bottle to Russia. Right. So you have, for being a winery that represents the territory, you have to resist to these kind of things to bring uh, the culture of wine to the next century. This is something that we want to do at Garofoli. So really you don't want to just make one
1: wine, is what you're saying? Yes, absolutely, absolutely. You want to have a few arrows in the quiver to choose from. Absolutely, yes. And so it's not just about vintage variation, it's also about consumer
2: variation. In terms of uh, the final customer, the taste, the style, you have uh, always to balance uh, what you want to do, what you want to propose. And uh, you know, sometimes the customer follows you, sometimes uh, you pay attention to him. It's a balance.
1: Yeah, but it's interesting because a lot of times you guys were first with a particular style in the region. You know, obviously you got started before everyone else, but you guys were the first to do a Barrique Verdicchio or the first to do a Spumante Metodo Classico. The first
2: to have uh, left the historical bottle of Verdicchio, the Amphora bottle. The first Bordeaux bottle, Macrina, was a Garofoli we made the first metodo classico montepulciano we made the first brandy out of montepulciano wine Uh, garofoli it's a balance of uh, innovation and tradition it's funny
1: because when i look back in the production of Garofoli, you know from my perspective being an american i'm like oh those are things that were popular back in a certain time period of america like um, a novello but it's funny because now there's a lot of carbonic maceration reds especially but what you realize is that this has happened before that there was a period of vogue for carbonic maceration reds in the past and also uh, semi-sparkling wines this has also happened before because you know pet nets are very popular now but when you think back you're like oh i see yeah like actually in the 70s there was a period of time where semi-sparkling was really popular so it's it's funny it's almost like by learning about garofli i can almost learn some history that's. Because a lot of times when we talk about those categories in the States,
2: we don't say like, yeah, so like 30 years ago, this is popular again. We say like, this is the new thing. I know exactly what you're talking about. And uh, in fact, when, uh, when uh, I sell my frizzante, that was in the region, the first natural frizzante in the 60s, and it's now, you know, the little bubbles are, are popular. For me, it's something, okay, okay, fantastic. It's a new thing. For us, it's uh, one of the most historical. Or like the screw cap. For example, when we started to bottle, we started with the crown cap, like the beer cap. And then it was all with a screw cap. And then it was all with a cork. And now in Italy, in fact, with the perception of a screw cap, you don't sell, you don't see bottles of screw cap in Italy because it was something, uh, something uh, happened from the past, but they were not good screw cap. So it was just for young and cheap wines. And like uh, De Novello, for example, uh, carbonic maceration it's something that comes from the past. But as I said, you know, sometimes uh, we go in one direction, then we go back. Uh, for example, white wine, Verdicchio. In the, past, uh, if you, in the past, I'm talking about the 90s, Verdicchio and barrique. Now, if you say, oh, I use barrique," oh, wow, you are the devil. Right, right, uh, right, right. So, uh, you know, right. and, and who knows, in 15 years, uh, it changes. The only thing is that you have to always to keep uh, your project, what you do, and keep going. Then maybe you said 6,000 bottles of Barricka and Verdicchio or 10, and in the past it was 50. Who cares? You keep going. And then maybe there is always someone who follows you and uh, keeps going and tasting his wines. You, know, it's, um, you have to pay attention to the trends, but not that much.
1: What you said is very relevant to you in particular, because you make... Um what I would think of as a Reserva, but it's called selectione level with barrique and also without barrique. So you make Podium and then you make the barrique bottling as well. So you actually see both of those in terms of the market response, but also in terms of what it is to produce them.
2: Yes, the Verdicchio in barrique was made the first time in in 1984. And in those years, the idea was that if you want to age a white wine, you have to ferment and mature with barrique. And in 1991, we made Podium because we thought, oh, no, maybe not. Maybe we can do very long-aging white wine without using the barrique. And in fact, it was like that. When it's 5, 6, 10 years old, you love the Podium. That is our stainless steel tank version of Verdicchio. When you go up to 15, 20 years old, or even more, or even 30 years old, (laughs) the Verdicchio Barrique, it's uh, extraordinary. And even the work we did with the barracks 30 years ago is totally different from what we are doing now. These kind of things changed uh, with the same piece of wood uh, in 30 years. Even the the way of consumption of wine uh, 30 years ago, it was like water, uh, bread, and wine. Now, special occasion. Special wine, special occasion. Totally different way of drinking wine. What do you see in the
1: region? When people come to your cellar door who are Italian,
2: what do they ask you for? Verdicchio, to me, uh, is uh, one of the top uh, white grape varietal and wine in the world. Elegance, uh, ageability, and this uh, persistence, this mouthfeel. I love Verdicchio. I think it's, in terms of ageability, when you taste a 30 years old or 20 years old, Verdicchio it's uh, stunning. It's fantastic. So Verdicchio is for sure great white grape varietal. But in the region... This wine was uh, well-known to give a headache because uh, it's a strong white wine with personality, with uh, usually a higher alcohol percentage because we go into October to harvest, so more sugar, more alcohol. So people here think about Verdicchio like a uh, little Barolo, you know, on the white side. Oh, Verdicchio, oh, it's too heavy. It gives headache. So now people drink in the region and drink a Passerina, a very simple white wine. So it's uh, from us, from our point of view, it's very frustrating because um, you think to have, you know, one of the biggest treasury in the world. And then uh, your local people, they drink a, a simple white wine. So it's very frustrating. Uh, so the trend is not vertical in the market region right now.
1: That's amazing because, you know, you would never hear that in the States. I mean, it's viewed the other way, more like Chablis Sancerre.
2: In fact, uh, we see great reception of verdicchio in the United States and not, not only because uh, there is not this, uh, the same feeling that we have here. But you have to think about that in the past, as I said before, wine was wine, like bread was bread and pasta was pasta. So obviously, if you drink one liter for lunch and one liter for dinner, you pay attention to these kind of things. So uh, not anymore now. I don't understand why it happened. Really frustrating for us producers. I think you would never have a, a vertical tasting of 30 years vintages of Passerina. So <laughs> so I don't know. I don't know. Sometimes we don't have a, a, an answer for, for everything. In terms
1: of harvesting in October, that's required because the skins need to be ripe. What is it that's necessary for harvesting in October. Why is that a, a
2: prerequisite? The maturation is the degree of sugar that we need especially when you have to make a verdicchio for aging that needs to stay with uh, with lees to find the right balance with the CDT. It all happened in uh, in October. That's interesting because
1: you know, I can think of a lot of, of regions where the white wines would have been picked long before that.
2: Yeah, but verdicchio is like a red wine. It's not considered a white wine. You know,
1: one of the things that's a little tricky for me to understand is whether there's malolactic conversion or not with a verdicchio. Because I feel like sometimes there is, sometimes there's not, sometimes it's partial.
2: And maybe that's tied to when you're harvesting because there's less malic if you're picking that late. The acidity content is very important. It's uh, in the must. And the malolactic that uh, we don't do uh, anymore in the last uh, six years. So for any of the wines, you no, don't do malo? No, we don't do malolatic. So this is, you see, another different trend in the, in the cellar. You know, these are kind of the things uh, that change uh, Ten years ago, oh, we do malolatic. Even you could not say we don't do malolatic. These are the little things that uh, then makes a different style on, on a wine. Uh, when we talk about style. And now it's about more freshness rather than oily and uh, structure. So, no malolatic. Uh You know, in the past, uh, it was more oily.
1: We've talked a lot about stylistic change over time, and one of the things that has become more popular
2: is the use of cement fermenters. And you guys often ferment in cement. Yes, actually, we are old style because we never change it because we are an old winery more than a century. In the past, we used to have uh, only underground concrete tanks. And we still do have uh, the eighty percent of the production. Actually, the hundred percent of the production of Verdicchio is with in concrete. Always been. For simplicity, we always say stainless steel tank. But uh, uh, maybe we have uh, ten stainless steel tanks at the winery, and everything is under the ground. This is our heritage in the past uh, without electricity? And um, for many years, uh, for many years, I remember in the nineties when my my father was presenting the wines. And my uncle said, don't say that we do concrete, we do have concrete. You see this, uh, <laughs> the trends. And uh, I said, don't say we do concrete because now it's stainless steel tank, blah, blah, blah. And uh, instead, uh, there is a good, uh, very good way of fermenting wine. You have always the, the, the same temperature, so you don't have uh, shocks. You cannot control, you cannot bring from 27 to zero. And this is uh, the nicest uh, thing of the concrete. And how big are they? Are they- Oh, they, it's very different. Uh, it's very, some are very small, some are very big. So, As I said, uh, 100 years ago, uh, quantity. So you have some of them that are big like a room. It's really, it's really a big room under the ground. It's like a living room. Today, it's difficult to manage this kind of big uh, concrete tanks because we do micro-vinification, smaller lots. So we use a lot of the smaller concrete tanks. What are some of the
1: personal favorites over time that really stood out for you of particular vintage, particular
2: wine? With uh, our wine Podium, Verdicchio, I love uh, 2010, very mineral. I love 2007, uh, seaweed. It's kind of like a whiskey from uh, Isla. 2003, very balsamic. So you have a mix of anise and balsamic, menthol taste, very unique. Then we have uh, 99 um, that is really uh, fruity. And actually, I, I forgot the, probably the best vintage of Verdicchio 2006. <laughs> I think in the last 20 years, so 2006 is the, uh, the best of the best of, uh, of Verdicchio. It's uh, very, very interesting uh, to taste an old vintage in uh, one, two hours while you're sitting on a table.
1: Very, very interesting. Gianluca Garofoli makes very interesting wines that you can enjoy at your own table from the Marque. Thank you very much for being here today.
2: Thank you very much.
1: John Luca Garofli of the Garofli Winery in the market.
2: All Drink to That is
0: hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Skella has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Ra Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs